Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing our reading with Book 2, Chapter 8, Section 20. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. First, let us examine whether such punishment is inconsistent with the divine justice. If human nature is universally condemned, those on whom the Lord does not bestow the communication of his grace must be doomed to destruction. Nevertheless, they perish by their own iniquity, not by unjust hatred on the part of God. There is no room to expostulate and ask why the grace of God does not forward their salvation as it does that of others. Therefore, when God punishes the wicked and flagitious for their crimes by depriving their families of his grace for many generations, who will dare to bring a charge against him for this most righteous vengeance? But it will be said, The Lord, on the contrary, declares that the Son shall not suffer for the Father's sin. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Observe the scope of that passage. The Israelites, after being subjected to a long period of uninterrupted calamities, had begun to say, as a proverb, that their fathers had eaten the sour grape, and thus set the children's teeth on edge, meaning that they, though in themselves righteous and innocent, were paying the penalty of sins committed by their parents, and this more from the implacable anger than the duly tempered severity of God. The prophet declares it was not so, that they were punished for their own wickedness, that it was not in accordance with the justice of God that a righteous son should suffer for the iniquity of a wicked father, and that nothing of the kind was exemplified in what they suffered. For if the visitation of which we now speak is accomplished when God withdraws from the children of the wicked the light of his truth and the other helps to salvation, the only way in which they are accursed for their father's wickedness is in being blinded and abandoned by God and so left to walk in their parents' steps. The misery which they suffer in time and the destruction to which they are finally doomed are thus punishments inflicted by divine justice, not for the sins of others, but for their own iniquity. Section 21. On the other hand, there is a promise of mercy to thousands, a promise which is frequently mentioned in Scripture and forms an article in the solemn covenant made with the Church. I will be, quote, a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee, unquote. Genesis 17, verse 7. With reference to this, Solomon says, quote, The just man walketh in his integrity, his children are blessed after him, unquote. Proverbs 20, verse 7. Not only in consequence of a religious education, though this certainly is by no means unimportant, but in consequence of the blessing promised in the covenant, viz., that the divine favor will dwell forever in the families of the righteous. 
Herein is excellent consolation to believers, and great ground of terror to the wicked. For if, after death, the mere remembrance of righteousness and iniquity have such an influence on the divine procedure that his blessing rests on the posterity of the righteous and his curse on the posterity of the wicked, much more must it rest on the heads of the individuals themselves. Notwithstanding of this, however, the offspring of the wicked sometimes amends, while that of believers degenerates. Because the Almighty has not here laid down an inflexible rule which might derogate from his free election, for the consolation of the righteous and the dismay of the sinner, it is enough that the threatening itself is not vain or nugatory, although it does not always take effect. For as the temporal punishments inflicted on a few of the wicked are proofs of the divine wrath against sin, and of the future judgment that will ultimately overtake all sinners, though many escape with impunity even to the end of their lives, so when the Lord gives one example of blessing a son for his father's sake by visiting him in mercy and kindness, it is a proof of constant and unfailing favor to his worshipers. On the other hand, when, in any single instance, he visits the iniquity of the father on the son, he gives intimation of the judgment which awaits all the reprobate for their own iniquities. The certainty of this is the principal thing here taught. Moreover, the Lord, as it were, by the way, commends the riches of his mercy by extending it to thousands, while he limits his vengeance to four generations. Third Commandment Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Section 22 the purport of this commandment is that the majesty of the name of God is to be held sacred. In some, therefore, it means that we must not profane it by using it irreverently or contemptuously. This prohibition implies a corresponding precept, viz., that it be our study and care to treat his name with religious veneration. Wherefore, it becomes us to regulate our minds and our tongues so as never to think or speak of God and his mysteries without reverence and great soberness, and never, in estimating his works, to have any feeling towards him but one of deep veneration. We must, I say, steadily observe the three following things. First, whatever our mind conceives of him, whatever our tongue utters, must bespeak his excellence and correspond to the sublimity of his sacred name. In short, must be fitted to extol its greatness. Secondly, we must not rashly and preposterously pervert his sacred word and adorable mysteries to purposes of ambition or avarice or amusement, but according as they bear the impress of his dignity must always maintain them in due honor and esteem. Lastly, we must not detract from or throw obloquy upon his works, as miserable men are wont insultingly to do, but must laud every action which we attribute to him as wise and just and good. This is to sanctify the name of God. When we act otherwise, his name is profaned with vain and wicked abuse, because it is applied to a purpose foreign to that to which it is consecrated. Were there nothing worse in being deprived of its dignity, it is gradually brought into contempt. But if there is no such evil in the rash and unseasonable employment of the divine name, there is still more evil in its being employed for nefarious purposes, as is done by those who use it in necromancy, cursing, illicit exorcisms, and other impious incantations. But the commandment refers especially to the case of oaths, in which a perverse employment of the divine name is particularly detestable, 
and this it does more effectually to deter us from every species of profanation, that the thing here commanded relates to the worship of God and the reverence due to his name, and not to the equity which men are to cultivate towards each other, is apparent from this, that afterwards in the second table there is a condemnation of the perjury and false testimony by which human society is injured, and that the repetition would be superfluous if, in this commandment, the duty of charity were handled. Moreover, this is necessary even for distinction, because, as was observed, God has, for good reason, divided his law into two tables. The inference, then, is that God here vindicates his own right and defends his sacred name, but does not teach the duties which men owe to men. Section 23. In the first place, we must consider what an oath is. An oath, then, is calling God to witness that what we say is true. Execrations being manifestly insulting to God are unworthy of being classed among oaths. That an oath, when duly taken, is a species of divine worship, appears from many passages of Scripture, as when Isaiah prophesies of the admission of the Assyrians and Egyptians to a participation in the covenant. He says, quote, In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan, and swear to the Lord of hosts. Unquote. Isaiah 19, verse 18. Swearing by the name of the Lord here means that they will make a profession of religion. In like manner, speaking of the extension of the Redeemer's kingdom, it is said, quote, He who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Unquote. Isaiah 65, verse 16. In Jeremiah it is said, quote, If they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, the Lord liveth, as they taught my people to swear by Baal. Then shall they be built in the midst of my people. Unquote. Jeremiah 12, verse 16. By appealing to the name of the Lord and calling him to witness, we are justly said to declare our own religious veneration of him. For we thus acknowledge that he is eternal and unchangeable truth, inasmuch as we not only call upon him in preference to others as a fit witness to the truth, but as its only asserter, able to bring hidden things to light, a discerner of the hearts. When human testimony fails, we appeal to God as witness, especially when the matter to be proved lies hid in the conscience. For which reason the Lord is grievously offended with those who swear by strange gods, and construe such swearing as a proof of open revolt, quote, Thy children have forsaken me, and sworn by them that are no gods. Unquote. Jeremiah 5, verse 7. The heinousness of the offense is declared by the punishment denounced against it. Quote, I will cut off them that swear by the Lord, and that swear by Malcolm. Unquote. Zephaniah 1, verses 4 and 5. Section 24. Understanding that the Lord would have our oaths to be a species of divine worship, we must be the more careful that they do not, instead of worship, contain insult, or contempt, and vilification. It is no slight insult to swear by him and do it falsely. Hence, in the law, this is termed profanation. Leviticus 19, verse 12. For if God is robbed of his truth, what is it that remains? Without truth he could not be God. But assuredly he is robbed of his truth when he is made the approver and attester of what is false. Hence, when Joshua is endeavoring to make Achan confess the truth, he says, quote, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel. Unquote. Joshua 7, verse 19. Intimating that grievous dishonor is done to God when men swear by him falsely. And no wonder, for as far as in them lies, his sacred name is in a manner branded with falsehood. That this mode of expression was common among the Jews whenever anyone was called upon to take an oath is evident from a similar obtestation used by the Pharisees as given in John, John 9, verse 24. 
Scripture reminds us of the caution which we ought to use by employing such expressions as the following, quote, As the Lord liveth, unquote. Quote, God do so and more also, unquote. Quote, I call God for a record upon my soul, unquote. Such expressions intimate that we cannot call God to witness our statement without imprecating his vengeance for perjury if it is false. Section 25. The name of God is vulgarized and vilified when used in oaths which, though true, are superfluous. This too is to take his name in vain. Wherefore it is not sufficient to abstain from perjury unless we at the same time remember that an oath is not appointed or allowed for passion or pleasure but for necessity, and that therefore a licentious use is made of it by him who uses it on any other than necessary occasions. Moreover, no case of necessity can be pretended unless where some purpose of religion or charity is to be served. In this matter, great sin is committed in the present day, sin the more intolerable in this, that its frequency has made it cease to be regarded as a fault, though it certainly is not accounted trivial before the judgment seat of God. The name of God is everywhere profaned by introducing it indiscriminately in frivolous discourse and the evil is disregarded because it has been long and audaciously persisted in with impunity. The commandment of the Lord, however, stands. The penalty also stands and will one day receive effect. Special vengeance will be executed on those who have taken the name of God in vain. Another form of violation is exhibited when, with manifest impiety, we in our oath substitute the holy servants of God for God himself, thus conferring upon them the glory of his Godhead. It is not without cause the Lord has, by special commandment, required us to swear by his name, and by special prohibition forbidden us to swear by other gods. The apostle gives a clear attestation to the same effect when he says that, quote, men verily swear by the greater, unquote, but that, quote, when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, unquote. Hebrews 6, verses 16 and 13. Section 26. The Anabaptists, not content with this moderate use of oaths, condemn all without exception on the ground of our Savior's general prohibition. Quote, I say unto you, swear not at all, unquote. Quote, let your speech be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil, unquote. Matthew 5, verse 34, and James 5, verse 12. In this way they inconsiderately make a stumbling stone of Christ, setting him in opposition to the Father as if he had descended into the world to annul his decrees. In the law, the Almighty not only permits an oath as a thing that is lawful, this were amply sufficient, but in a case of necessity actually commands it. Exodus 22, verse 11. Christ again declares that he and his Father are one, that he only delivers what was commanded of his Father, that his doctrine is not his own, but his that sent him. John 10, verse 18 and 30 and chapter 7 verse 16 what then will they make God contradict himself by approving and commanding at one time what he afterwards prohibits and condemns but as there is some difficulty in what our Savior says on the subject of swearing it may be proper to consider it a little here however we shall never arrive at the true meaning unless we attend to the design of Christ and the subject of which he is treating his purpose was neither to relax nor to curtail the law but to restore the true and genuine meaning which had been greatly corrupted by the false glosses of the scribes and Pharisees if we attend to this we shall not suppose that Christ condemned all oaths but those only which transgressed the rule of the law 
It is evident from the oaths themselves that the people were accustomed to think it enough if they avoided perjury, whereas the law prohibits not perjury merely, but also vain and superfluous oaths. Therefore our Lord, who is the best interpreter of the law, reminds them that there is a sin not only in perjury, but in swearing. How in swearing? namely by swearing vainly. Those oaths, however, which are authorized by the law, he leaves safe and free. Those who condemn oaths think their argument invincible when they fasten on the expression, not at all. The expression applies not to the word swear, but to the subjoined forms of oaths. For part of the error consisted in their supposing that when they swore by the heaven and the earth, they did not touch the name of God. The Lord, therefore, after cutting off the principal source of prevarication, deprives them of all subterfuges, warning them against supposing that they escape guilt by suppressing the name of God and appealing to heaven and earth. For it ought here to be observed in passing that although the name of God is not expressed, yet men swear by him in using indirect forms, as when they swear by the light of life, by the bread they eat, by their baptism, or any other pledges of the divine liberality towards them. Some erroneously suppose that our Savior in that passage rebukes superstition by forbidding men to swear by heaven and earth and Jerusalem. He rather refutes the sophistical subtlety of those who thought it nothing vainly to utter indirect oaths, imagining that they thus spared the holy name of God, whereas that name is inscribed on each of his mercies. The case is different when any mortal, living or dead, or an angel, is substituted in the place of God, as in the vile form devised by flattery in heathen nations, by the life or genius of the king. For in this case the false apotheosis obscures and impairs the glory of the one God. But when nothing else is intended than to confirm what is said by an appeal to the holy name of God, although it is done indirectly, yet his majesty is insulted by all frivolous oaths. Christ strips this abuse of every vain pretext when he says, Swear not at all. To the same effect is the passage in which James uses the words of our Savior above quoted, James 5, verse 12. For this rash swearing has always prevailed in the world, notwithstanding that it is a profanation of the name of God. If you refer the words, not at all, to the act itself, as if every oath without exception were unlawful, what will be the use of the explanation which immediately follows, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, etc.? These words make it clear that the object in view was to meet the cavils by which the Jews thought they could extenuate their fault. Section 27. Every person of sound judgment must now see that in that passage our Lord merely condemned those oaths which were forbidden by the law. For he who in his life exhibited a model of perfection which he taught did not object to oaths whenever the occasion required them, and the disciples who doubtless in all things obeyed their master followed the same rule. Who will dare to say that Paul would have sworn, Romans 1, verse 9, and 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23, if an oath had been altogether forbidden? But when the occasion calls for it, he adjures without any scruple, and sometimes even imprecates. The question, however, is not yet disposed of, for some think that the only oaths exempted from the prohibition are public oaths, such as those which are administered to us by the magistrate, or independent states employ in ratifying treaties, or the people take when they swear allegiance to their sovereign, or the soldier in the case of the military oath, and others of a similar description. To this class they refer, and justly, those protestations in the writings of Paul which assert the dignity of the gospel. Since the apostles, in discharging their office, were not private individuals, but the public servants of God, 
I certainly deny not that such oaths are the safest, because they are most strongly supported by passages of Scripture. The magistrate is enjoined in a doubtful matter to put the witness upon oath, and he in his turn to answer upon oath, and an apostle says that in this way there is an end of all strife. Hebrews 6, verse 16. In this commandment both parties are fully approved. Nay, we may observe that among the ancient heathens a public and solemn oath was held in great reverence, while those common oaths which were indiscriminately used were in little or no estimation, as if they thought that in regard to them the deity did not interpose. Private oaths used soberly, sacredly, and reverently on necessary occasions, it were perilous to condemn, supported as they are by reason and example. For if private individuals are permitted, in a grave and serious matter, to appeal to God as a judge, much more may they appeal to him as a witness. Your brother charges you with perfidy. You, as bound by the duties of charity, labor to clear yourself from the charge. He will in no account be satisfied. If, through his obstinate malice, your good name is brought into jeopardy, you can appeal, without offense, to the judgment of God, that he may in time manifest your innocence. If the terms are weighed, it will be found that it is a less matter to call upon him to be witness, and I therefore see not how it can be called unlawful to do so. And there is no want of examples, if it is pretended that the oath which Abraham and Isaac made with Abimelech was of a public nature, that by which Jacob and Laban found themselves in mutual league was private. Boaz, though a private man, confirmed his promise of marriage to Ruth in the same way. Obadiah, too, a just man, and one that feared God, though a private individual, in seeking to persuade Elijah, asseverates with an oath. I hold, therefore, that there is no better rule than so to regulate our oaths that they shall neither be rash, frivolous, promiscuous, or passionate, but be made to serve a just necessity. In other words, to vindicate the glory of God, or promote the edification of a brother. This is the end of the commandment. Fourth Commandment Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, etc. Section 28 The purport of the command is, that being dead to our own affections and works, we meditate on the kingdom of God, and in order to such meditation have recourse to the means which he has appointed. But as this commandment stands in peculiar circumstances apart from the others, the mode of exposition must be somewhat different. Early Christian writers are wont to call it typical as containing the external observance of a day which was abolished with other types on the advent of Christ. This is indeed true, but it leaves the half of the matter untouched. Wherefore we must look deeper for our exposition, and attend to three cases in which it appears to me that the observance of this commandment consists. First, under the rest of the seventh day, the divine lawgiver meant to furnish the people of Israel with a type of the spiritual rest by which believers were to cease from their own works and allow God to work in them. Secondly, he meant that there should be a stated day on which they should assemble to hear the law and perform religious rites, or which, at least, they should specially employ in meditating on his works and be thereby trained to piety. Thirdly, he meant that servants and those who lived under the authority of others should be indulged with a day of rest, and thus have some intermission from labor. Section 29. We are taught in many passages that this adumbration of spiritual rest held a primary place in the Sabbath. Indeed, there is no commandment the observance of which the Almighty more strictly enforces. 
When he would intimate by the prophets that religion was entirely subverted, he complains that his Sabbaths were polluted, violated, not kept, not hallowed, as if, after it was neglected, there remained nothing in which he could be honored. The observance of it he eulogizes in the highest terms, and hence, among other divine privileges, the faithful set an extraordinary value on the revelation of the Sabbath. In Nehemiah, the Levites, and the public assembly, thus speak, quote, Thou madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant, unquote. You see the singular honor which it holds among all the precepts of the law. All this tends to celebrate the dignity of the mystery, which is most admirably expressed by Moses and Ezekiel. Thus in Exodus, quote, quote, Verily my Sabbath shall ye keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Ye shall keep my Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. Every one that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever." Unquote. Exodus 31, verses 13 through 17. Ezekiel is still more full, but the sum of what he says amounts to this, that the Sabbath is a sign by which Israel might know that God is their sanctifier. If our sanctification consists in the mortification of our own will, the analogy between the external sign and the thing signified is most appropriate. We must rest entirely in order that God may work in us. We must resign our own will, yield up our heart, and abandon all the lusts of the flesh. In short, we must desist from all the acts of our own mind, that God working in us, we may rest in Him as the Apostle also teaches. Hebrews 3, verse 13, and 4, verses 3 and 9. Section 30. This complete cessation was represented to the Jews by the observance of one day in seven, which, that it might be more religiously attended to, the Lord recommended by his own example. For it is no small incitement to the zeal of man to know that he is engaged in imitating his Creator. Should any one expect some secret meaning in the number seven, this being in Scripture the number for perfection, it may have been selected not without cause to denote perpetuity. In accordance with this, Moses concludes his description of the succession of day and night on the same day on which he relates that the Lord rested from his works. Another probable reason for the number may be that the Lord intended that the Sabbath never should be completed before the arrival of the last day. We here begin our blessed rest in him, and daily make new progress in it. But because we must still wage an incessant warfare with the flesh, it shall not be consummated until the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, quote, From one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord, unquote. Isaiah 66, verse 23. In other words, when God shall be, quote, all in all, unquote, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. It may seem, therefore, that by the seventh day the Lord delineated to his people the future perfection of his Sabbath on the last day, that by continual meditation on the Sabbath they might, throughout their whole lives, aspire to this perfection. Section 31. Should these remarks to the numbers seem to any somewhat far-fetched, I have no objection to their taking it more simply. 
that the Lord appointed a certain day on which his people might be trained under the tutelage of the law to meditate constantly on the spiritual rest and fixed upon the seventh either because he foresaw it would be sufficient or in order that his own example might operate as a stronger stimulus or at least to remind men that the Sabbath was appointed for no other purpose than to render them conformable to their Creator. It is of little consequence which of these be adopted, provided we lose not sight of the principal thing delineated, viz., the mystery of perpetual resting from our works. To the contemplation of this, the Jews were every now and then called by the prophets, lest they should think a carnal cessation from labor sufficient. Beside the passages already quoted, there is the following, quote, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. Unquote. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. Still, there can be no doubt that on the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, the ceremonial part of the commandment was abolished. He is the truth at whose presence all the emblems banish, the body at the sight of which the shadows disappear. He, I say, is the true completion of the Sabbath. Quote, we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Unquote. Romans 6, verse 4. Hence, as the apostle elsewhere says, quote, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Unquote. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Meaning by body the whole essence of the truth, as is well explained in that passage. This is not contented with one day, but requires the whole course of our lives, until being completely dead to ourselves, we are filled with the life of God. Christians, therefore, should have nothing to do with a superstitious observance of days. Section 32. The two other cases ought not to be classed with ancient shadows, but are adapted to every age. The Sabbath being abrogated, there is still room among us first to assemble on stated days for the hearing of the word, the breaking of the mystical bread, and public prayer, and secondly, to give our servants and laborers relaxation from labor. It cannot be doubted that the Lord provided for both in the commandment of the Sabbath. The former is abundantly evinced by the mere practice of the Jews. The latter, Moses, has expressed in Deuteronomy in the following terms, quote, The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. Unquote. Deuteronomy 5.14 Likewise in Exodus, quote, That thine ox and thine ass may rest, and the son of thy handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. Unquote. Exodus 23, verse 12 who can deny that both are equally applicable to us as to the Jews? Religious meetings are enjoined us by the word of God. Their necessity, experience itself, sufficiently demonstrates. But unless these meetings are stated and have fixed days allotted to them, how can they be held? We must, as the Apostle expresses it, do all things decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. So impossible, however, would it be to preserve decency and order without this politic arrangement that the dissolution of it would instantly lead to the disturbance and ruin of the church. But if the reason for which the Lord appointed a Sabbath to the Jews is equally applicable to us, 
no man can assert that it is a matter with which we have nothing to do. Our most provident and indulgent parent has been pleased to provide for our wants, not less than for the wants of the Jews. Why, it may be asked, do we not hold daily meetings and thus avoid the distinction of days? Would that we were privileged to do so? Spiritual wisdom undoubtedly deserves to have some portion of every day devoted to it. But if, owing to the weakness of many, daily meetings cannot be held, and charity will not allow us to exact more of them, why should we not adopt the rule which the will of God has obviously imposed upon us? Section 33 I am obliged to dwell a little longer on this, because some restless spirits are now making an outcry about the observance of the Lord's day. They complain that Christian people are trained in Judaism, because some observance of days is retained. My reply is that those days are observed by us without Judaism, because in this matter we differ widely from the Jews. We do not celebrate it with most minute formality as a ceremony by which we imagine that a spiritual mystery is typified, but we adopt it as a necessary remedy for preserving order in the church. Paul informs us that Christians are not to be judged in respect of its observance, because it is a shadow of something to come, Colossians 2, verse 16. And accordingly, he expresses a fear lest his labor among the Galatians should prove in vain, because they still observed days, Galatians 4, verses 10 and 11. And he tells the Romans that it is superstitious to make one day differ from another, Romans 14, verse 5. But who, except those restless men, does not see what the observance is to which the apostle refers? Those persons had no regard to that politic and ecclesiastical arrangement, but by retaining the days as types of spiritual things, they insofar obscured the glory of Christ and the light of the gospel. They did not desist from manual labor on the ground of its interfering with sacred study and meditation, but as a kind of religious observance because they dreamed that by their cessation from labor they were cultivating the mysteries which had of old been committed to them. It was, I say, against this preposterous observance of days that the apostle invades, and not against that legitimate selection which is subservient to the peace of Christian society. For in the churches established by him this was the use for which the Sabbath was retained. He tells the Corinthians to set the first day apart for collecting contributions for the relief of their brethren at Jerusalem, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. If superstition is dreaded, there was more danger in keeping the Jewish Sabbath than the Lord's Day as Christians now do. It being expedient to overthrow superstition, the Jewish Holy Day was abolished, and as a thing necessary to retain decency, order, and peace in the church, another day was appointed for that purpose. Section 34 it was not, however, without a reason that the early Christians substituted what we call the Lord's Day for the Sabbath, the resurrection of our Lord being the end and accomplishment of that true rest which the ancient Sabbath typified. This day, by which types were abolished, serves to warn Christians against adhering to a shadowy ceremony. I do not cling so to the number seven as to bring the church under bondage to it, nor do I condemn churches for holding their meetings on other solemn days, provided they guard against superstition. This they will do if they employ those days merely for the observance of discipline and regular order. The whole may be thus summed up. As the truth was delivered typically to the Jews, so it is imparted to us without figure. First, that during our whole lives we may aim at a constant rest from our own works, in order that the Lord may work in us by His Spirit. Secondly, that every individual, as he has opportunity, may diligently exercise himself in private, 
in pious meditation on the works of God and at the same time that all may observe the legitimate order appointed by the church for the hearing of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and public prayer. And, thirdly, that we may avoid oppressing those who are subject to us. In this way, we get quit of the trifling of the false prophets, who in later times instilled Jewish ideas into the people, alleging that nothing was abrogated but what was ceremonial in the commandment. This they term in their language the taxation of the seventh day, while the moral part remains, these, the observance of one day in seven. But this is nothing else than to insult the Jews by changing the day and yet mentally attributing to it the same sanctity thus retaining the same typical distinction of days as had placed among the Jews. And of a truth we see what profit they have made by such a doctrine. Those who cling to their constitutions go thrice as far as the Jews in the gross and carnal superstition of Sabbatism, so that the rebukes which we read in Isaiah, Isaiah 1.13, and 58, verse 13, apply as much to those of the present day as to those to whom the prophet addressed them. We must be careful, however, to observe the general doctrine, viz., in order that religion may neither be lost nor languish among us. We must diligently attend our religious assemblies, and duly avail ourselves of those external aids which tend to promote the worship of God. Fifth Commandment Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Section 35 the end of this commandment is that since the Lord takes pleasure in the preservation of his own ordinance, the degrees of dignity appointed by him must be held inviolable. The sum of the commandment, therefore, will be that we are to look up to those whom the Lord has set over us, yielding them honor, gratitude, and obedience. Hence it follows that everything in the way of contempt, ingratitude, or disobedience is forbidden. For the term honor has this extent of meaning in Scripture. Thus, when the Apostle says, quote, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, unquote, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, he refers not only to the reverence which is due to them, but to the recompense to which their services are entitled. But as this command to submit is very repugnant to the perversity of the human mind, which, puffed up with ambitious longings, will scarcely allow itself to be subject, that superiority which is most attractive and least invidious is set forth as an example calculated to soften and bend our minds to habits of submission. From that subjection which is most easily endured, the Lord gradually accustoms us to every kind of legitimate subjection, the same principle regulating all. For to those whom he raises to eminence, he communicates his authority insofar as necessary to maintain their station. The titles of Father, God, and the Lord all meet in him alone, and hence, whenever any one of them is mentioned, our mind should be impressed with the same feeling of reverence. Those, therefore, to whom he imparts such titles, he distinguishes by some small spark of his refulgence, so as to entitle them to honor each in his own place. In this way, we must consider that our earthly father possesses something of a divine nature in him, because there is some reason for his bearing a divine title, and that he who is our prince and ruler is admitted to some communion of honor with God. Section 36 Wherefore, we ought to have no doubt that the Lord here lays down this universal rule, viz., that knowing how every individual is set over us by his appointment, we should pay him reverence, gratitude, obedience, and every duty in our power. 
and it makes no difference whether those on whom the honor is conferred are deserving or not. Be they what they may, the Almighty, by conferring their station upon them, shows that he would have them honored. The commandment specifies the reverence due to those to whom we owe our being. This nature herself should in some measure teach us, for they are monsters and not men who petulantly and contumeliously violate the paternal authority. Hence the Lord orders all who rebel against their parents to be put to death, they being, as it were, unworthy of the light and paying no deference to those to whom they are indebted for beholding it. And it is evident from the various appendices to the law that we were correct in stating that the honor here referred to consists of three parts, reverence, obedience, and gratitude. The first of these the Lord enforces when he commands that whoso curseth his father or his mother shall be put to death. In this way he avenges insult and contempt. The second he enforces when he denounces the punishment of death on disobedience and rebellious children. To the third belongs our Savior's declaration that God requires us to do good to our parents. Matthew 15. And whenever Paul mentions this commandment, he interprets it as enjoining obedience. Section 37. A promise is added by way of recommendation, the better to remind us how pleasing to God is the submission which is here required. Paul applies that stimulus to rouse us from our lethargy when he calls this the first commandment with promise. The promise contained in the first table not being specially appropriated to any one commandment, but extended to the whole law. Moreover, the sense in which the promise is to be taken is as follows. The Lord spoke to the Israelites, especially in the land which he had promised them for an inheritance. If, then, the possession of the land was an earnest of the divine favor, we cannot wonder if the Lord was pleased to testify his favor by bestowing long life, as in this way they were able long to enjoy his kindness. The meaning, therefore, is, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thou mayest be able, during the course of a long life, to enjoy the possession of the land which is to be given thee in testimony of my favor. But as the whole earth is blessed to believers, we justly class the present life among the number of divine blessings. Whence this promise has, in like manner, reference to us also, inasmuch as the duration of the present life is a proof of the divine benevolence toward us. It is not promised to us, nor was it promised to the Jews, as if in itself it constituted happiness, but because it is an ordinary symbol of the divine favor to the pious. Wherefore, if any one who is obedient to parents happens to be cut off before mature age, a thing which not infrequently happens, the Lord nevertheless adheres to his promise as steadily as when he bestows a hundred acres of land where he had promised only one. The whole lies in this. We must consider that long life is promised only in so far as it is a blessing from God, and that it is a blessing only in so far as it is a manifestation of divine favor. This, however, he testifies and truly manifests to his servants, more richly and substantially by death. Section 38. Moreover, while the Lord promises the blessing of present life to children who show proper respect to their parents, he at the same time intimates that an inevitable curse is impending over the rebellious and disobedient, and that it may not fail of execution, he, in his law, pronounces sentence of death upon them and orders it to be inflicted. If they escape the judgment, he in some way or other will execute vengeance. For we see how great a number of this description of individuals fall either in battle or in brawls. Others of them are overtaken by unwanted disasters, and almost all are a proof that the threatening is not used in vain. 
But if any do escape till extreme old age, yet because deprived of the blessing of God in this life, they only languish on in wickedness, and are reserved for severe punishment in the world to come, they are far from participating in the blessing promised to obedient children. It ought to be observed, by the way, that we are ordered to obey parents only in the Lord. This is clear from the principle already laid down, for the place which they occupy is one to which the Lord has exalted them by communicating to them a portion of his own honor. Therefore, the submission yielded to them should be a step in their ascent to the supreme parent, and hence, if they instigate us to transgress the law, they deserve not to be regarded as parents, but as strangers attempting to seduce us from our obedience to our true father. The same holds in the case of rulers, masters, and superiors of every description, for it were unbecoming and absurd that the honor of God should be impaired by their exaltation, an exaltation which, being derived from him, ought to lead us up to him. Sixth Commandment Thou shalt not kill Section 39 The purport of this commandment is that since the Lord has bound the whole human race by a kind of unity, the safety of all ought to be considered as entrusted to each. In general, therefore, all violence and injustice and every kind of harm from which our neighbor's body suffers is prohibited. Accordingly, we are required faithfully to do what in us lies to defend the life of our neighbor, to promote whatever tends to his tranquility, to be vigilant in warding off harm, and, when danger comes, to assist in removing it. Remembering that the divine lawgiver thus speaks, consider, moreover, that he requires you to apply the same rule in regulating your mind. It were ridiculous that he, who sees the thoughts of the heart, and has special regard to them, should train the body only to rectitude. This commandment, therefore, prohibits the murder of the heart, and requires a sincere desire to preserve our brother's life. The hand, indeed, commits the murder, but the mind, under the influence of wrath and hatred, conceives it. How can you be angry with your brother without passionately longing to do him harm? If you must not be angry with him, neither must you hate him, hatred being nothing but inveterate anger. However, you may disguise the fact, or endeavor to escape from it by vain pretexts, where either wrath or hatred is, there is an inclination to do mischief. If you still persist in tergiversation, the mouth of the Spirit has declared that, quote, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, unquote, 1 John 3, verse 15. And the mouth of our Savior has declared that, quote, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the counsel, but whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire, unquote. Matthew 5, verse 22. Section 40. Scripture notes a twofold equity on which this commandment is founded. Man is both the image of God and our flesh. Wherefore, if we would not violate the image of God, we must hold the person of man sacred. If we would not divest ourselves of humanity, we must cherish our own flesh. The practical inference to be drawn from the redemption and gift of Christ will be elsewhere considered. The Lord has been pleased to direct our attention to these two natural considerations as inducements to watch over our neighbor's preservation, viz., to revere the divine image impressed upon him and embrace our own flesh. To be clear of the crime of murder, it is not enough to refrain from shedding man's blood. If in act you perpetrate, if in endeavor you plot, if in wish and design you conceive what is adverse to another's safety, you have the guilt of murder. On the other hand, if you do not, according to your means and opportunity, study to defend his safety, by that inhumanity you violate the law.
But if the safety of the body is so carefully provided for, we may hence infer how much care and exertion is due to the safety of the soul, which is of immeasurably higher value in the sight of God. Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Section 41. The purport of this command is that God loves chastity and purity. We ought to guard against all uncleanness. The substance of the commandment, therefore, is that we must not defile ourselves with any impurity or libidinous excess. To this corresponds the affirmative that we must regulate every part of our conduct chastely and continently. The thing expressly forbidden is adultery to which lust naturally tends, that its filthiness being of a grosser and more palpable form, inasmuch as it casts a stain even on the body, may dispose us to abominate every form of lust. As the law under which man was created was not to lead a life of solitude, but enjoy a help me for him, and ever since he fell under the curse the necessity for this mode of life is increased, the Lord made the requisite provision for us in this respect by the institution of marriage, which, entered into under his authority, he has also sanctified with his blessing. Hence it is evident that any mode of cohabitation different from marriage is cursed in his sight, and that the conjugal relation was ordained as a necessary means of preventing us from giving way to unbridled lust. Let us beware, therefore, of yielding to indulgence, seeing we are assured that the curse of God lies on every man and woman cohabiting without marriage. Section 42 now, since the natural feeling and the passions inflamed by the fall make the marriage tie doubly necessary, save in the case of those whom God has by special grace exempted, let every individual consider how the case stands with himself. Virginity, I admit, is a virtue not to be despised, but since it is denied to some and to others granted only for a season, those who are assailed by incontinence and unable successfully to war against it should betake themselves to the remedy of marriage and thus cultivate chastity in the way of their calling. Those incapable of self-restraint, if they apply not to the remedy allowed and provided for in temperance, war with God and resist his ordinance. And let no man tell me, as many in the present day do, that he can do all things, God helping. The help of God is present with those only who walk in his ways. Psalm 91, verse 14, that is, in his calling, from which all withdraw themselves who, omitting the remedies provided by God, vainly and presumptuously strive to struggle with and surmount their natural feelings. That continence is a special gift from God, and of the class of those which are not bestowed indiscriminately on the whole body of the church, but only on a few of its members, our Lord affirms. Matthew 19, verse 12. He first describes a certain class of individuals who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, that is, in order that they may be able to devote themselves with more liberty and less restraint to the things of heaven. But lest any one should suppose that such a sacrifice was in every man's power, he had shown a little before that all are not capable but those only to whom it is specially given from above. Hence he concludes, quote, He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Unquote. Paul asserts the same thing still more plainly when he says, quote, Every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. Section 43. Since we are reminded by an express declaration that it is not in every man's power to live chaste in celibacy, although it may be his most strenuous study and aim to do so, that it is a special grace which the Lord bestows only on certain individuals in order that they may be less encumbered in his service, do we not oppose God and nature as constituted by him if we do not accommodate our mode of life to the measure of our ability? 
The Lord prohibits fornication, therefore he requires purity and chastity. The only method which each has of preserving it is to measure himself by his capacity. Let no man rashly despise matrimony as a thing useless or superfluous to him. Let no man long for celibacy unless he is able to dispense with the married state. Nor even here let him consult the tranquility or convenience of the flesh, save only that, freed from this tie, he may be the readier and more prepared for all the offices of piety. And since there are many on whom this blessing is conferred only for a time, let every one, in abstaining from marriage, do it so long as he is fit to endure celibacy. If he has not the power of subduing his passion, let him understand that the Lord made it obligatory on him to marry. The Apostle shows this when he enjoins, quote, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and every woman have her own husband, unquote. Quote, if they cannot contain, let them marry, unquote. He first intimates that the greater part of men are liable to incontinence, and then of those so liable, he orders all without exception to have recourse to the only remedy by which unchastity may be obviated. The incontinent, therefore, in neglecting to cure their infirmity by this means, sin by the very circumstance of disobeying the apostle's command. And let not a man flatter himself that because he abstains from the outward act, he cannot be accused of unchastity. His mind may, in the meantime, be inwardly inflamed with lust. For Paul's definition of chastity is purity of mind, combined with purity of body. Quote, the unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 34. Therefore, when he gives a reason for the former precept, he not only says that it is better to marry than to live in fornication, but that it is better to marry than to burn. Section 44. Moreover, when spouses are made aware that their union is blessed by the Lord, they are thereby reminded that they must not give way to intemperate and unrestrained indulgence. For though honorable wedlock veils the turpitude of incontinence, it does not follow that it ought forthwith to become a stimulus to it. Wherefore, let spouses consider that all things are not lawful for them, that there be sobriety in the behavior of the husband toward the wife, and of the wife in her turn toward the husband each so acting as not to do anything unbecoming the dignity and temperance of married life. Marriage contracted in the Lord ought to exhibit measure and modesty, not run to the extreme of wantonness. This excess Ambrose censured gravely, but not undeservedly, when he described the man who shows no modesty or comeliness in conjugal intercourse as committing adultery with his wife. Lastly, let us consider who the lawgiver is that thus condemns fornication. Even he who, as he is entitled to possess us entirely, requires integrity of body, soul, and spirit. Therefore, while he forbids fornication, he at the same time forbids us to lay snares for our neighbor's chastity by lascivious attire, obscene gestures, and impure conversation. There was reason in the remark made by Archelaus to a youth clothed effeminately and over-luxuriously, that it mattered not in what part his wantonness appeared. We must have respect to God, who abhors all contamination, whatever be the part of soul or body in which it appears. And that there may be no doubt about it, let us remember that what the Lord here commends is chastity. If he requires chastity, he condemns everything which is opposed to it. Therefore, if you aspire to obedience, let not your mind burn within with evil concupiscence, your eyes wanton after corrupting objects, nor your body be decked for allurement. Let neither your tongue by filthy speeches nor your appetite by intemperance entice the mind to corresponding thoughts. 
All vices of this description are a kind of stains which despoil chastity of its purity. Eighth Commandment Thou shalt not steal. The purport is that injustice being an abomination to God, we must render to every man his due. In substance, then, the commandment forbids us to long after other men's goods, and accordingly requires every man to exert himself honestly in preserving his own. For we must consider that what each individual possesses has not fallen to him by chance, but by the distribution of the sovereign Lord of all, that no one can pervert his means to bad purposes without committing a fraud on a divine dispensation. There are very many kinds of theft. One consists in violence, as when a man's goods are forcibly plundered and carried off. Another in malicious imposture, as when they are fraudulently intercepted. A third in the more hidden craft, which takes possession of them with a semblance of justice. And a fourth in sycophancy, which wiles them away under the pretense of donation. But not to dwell too long in enumerating the different classes, we know that all the arts by which we obtain possession of the goods and money of our neighbors, for sincere affection substituting an eagerness to deceive, or injure them in any way, are to be regarded as thefts. Though they may be obtained by an action at law, a different decision is given by God. He sees the long train of deception by which the man of craft begins to lay nets for his more simple neighbor, until he entangles him in its meshes, sees the harsh and cruel laws by which the more powerful oppresses and crushes the feeble, sees the enticements by which the more wily baits the hook for the less wary, though all these escape the judgment of man, and no cognizance is taken of them. Nor is the violation of this commandment confined to money, or merchandise, or lands, but extends to every kind of right. For we defraud our neighbors to their hurt if we decline any of the duties which we are bound to perform towards them. If an agent or an indolent steward wastes the substance of his employer, or does not give due heed to the management of his property, if he unjustly squanders, or luxuriously wastes the means entrusted to him, if a servant holds his master in derision, divulges his secrets, or in any way is treacherous to his life or his goods, if, on the other hand, a master cruelly torments his household, he is guilty of theft before God, since every one who, in the exercise of his calling, performs not what he owes to others, keeps back, or makes away with, what does not belong to him. Section 46 this commandment, therefore, we shall duly obey, if, contented with our own lot, we study to acquire nothing but honest and lawful gain. If we long not to grow rich by injustice, nor to plunder our neighbor of his goods, that our own may thereby be increased, if we hasten not to heap up wealth cruelly wrung from the blood of others, if we do not, by means lawful and unlawful, with excessive eagerness scrape together whatever may glut our avarice, or meet our prodigality, on the other hand, let it be our constant aim faithfully to lend our counsel and aid to all so as to assist them in retaining their property. Or if we have to do with the perfidious or crafty, let us rather be prepared to yield somewhat of our right than to contend with them. And not only so, but let us contribute to the relief of those whom we see under the pressure of difficulties assisting their want out of our abundance. Lastly, let each of us consider how far he is bound in duty to others, and in good faith pay what we owe. In the same way, let the people pay all due honor to their rulers, submit patiently to their authority, obey their laws and orders, and decline nothing which they can bear without sacrificing the favor of God. Let rulers again take due charge of their people, preserve the public peace, protect the good, curb the bad, and conduct themselves throughout as those who must render an account of their office to God, the judge of all. 
that the ministers of churches faithfully give heed to the ministry of the word, and not corrupt the doctrine of salvation, but deliver it purely and sincerely to the people of God. Let them teach not merely by doctrine, but by example. In short, let them act the part of good shepherds toward their flocks. Let the people in their turn receive them as the messengers and apostles of God, render them the honor which our Supreme Master has bestowed on them, and supply them with such things as are necessary for their livelihood. Let parents be careful to bring up, guide, and teach their children as a trust committed to them by God. Let them not exasperate or alienate them by cruelty, but cherish and embrace them with a lenity and indulgence which becomes their character. The regard due to parents from their children has already been adverted to. Let the young respect those advanced in years, as the Lord has been pleased to make that age honorable. Let the aged also, by their prudence and their experience, in which they are far superior, guide the feebleness of youth, not assailing them with harsh and clamorous invectives, but tempering strictness with ease and affability. Let servants show themselves diligent and respectful in obeying their masters, and this not with eye service, but with the heart, as the servants of God. Let masters also not be stern and disobliging to their servants, nor harass them with excessive asperity, nor treat them with insult, but rather let them acknowledge them as brethren and fellow servants of our Heavenly Master, whom, therefore, they are bound to treat with mutual love and kindness. Let every one, I say, thus consider what in his own place and order he owes to his neighbors, and pay what he owes. Moreover, we must always have a reference to the lawgiver, and so remember that the law requiring us to promote and defend the interest and convenience of our fellow men applies equally to our minds and our hands. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 7804681096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton AB Canada T6L3T5 If you do not have a web connection please request a free printed catalog If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. 
We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.